You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much for the opportunity of camp meeting. As we've rehearsed the wonderful things that are being presented here and shared here, we want to thank you for such a rich abundance of spiritual food. And Lord, in the few minutes that we have today in this room, I would ask that you would send your Holy Spirit in a special way. Yes, we want to fill this room, but more than that, we want to fill each one of us in this room. Please, Lord, send out any distractions, any discouragements, or anything that would take away from the truths that you want us to know. And Lord, beyond merely knowing them or rehearsing what we already know, help us to see new aspects and angles on this precious truth and help us to share it effectively as we realize once again that your coming is soon and very soon. But Lord, we want to make soon even sooner by being about our Father's business. So Lord, bless us to this end and make us soul winners for you, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Let me ask, let me start with a, a we're going we're gonna to hone in the, the nuts and bolts and looking up texts here and everything in a minute, but let me just start with a general conversation thing and solicit some responses if you'd be so bold. What, if you were to write a series of Bible studies to share with your friends, or you were given the responsibility of writing some sermons, preparing some public evangelistic messages, you have to sit down and think, okay, I've got to talk about certain things and what order do I put them in? What's one of the first things you'd want to introduce people to as you're walking them through the truths of God's Word or presenting an evangelistic series of messages? What are the number one, right off the bat, night number one, two, that kind of thing, what would you want to share first and why? Okay, confidence in the Bible as the Word of God. Okay, so you, in your own experience, that was a very important thing, was seeing that the Bible was credible and believable. Okay, I heard some other ones. Show hands or talk up loud. What, what do you got? Knowing Jesus. Jesus is the Savior, right? The love of God, right? That's good. Yes, ma'am? Start with the very, in the beginning. Okay, that's how you start a conversation with people about just starting from the very beginning and God's work in creation. Yes, ma'am? Now, you bring up a really interesting point. It was like, Jesus is coming soon, right? Jesus is coming soon doesn't mean much to someone who doesn't know or regard Jesus as even a real thing, right? So there is a, maybe first, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but I, I might be wrong, but most every Bible study or public evangelism series starts with one or two topics. And if it's not one or two, it'll be two and one, okay? And somebody please name for me what those two topics are. We've already touched on them. It, it, the Bible is trustworthy, and that's a, that's a theme, but how do, what's the... What's the scripture you go to for that? Daniel chapter 2. I can't tell how many people are like, why do we always start to introduce people to the Bible by going to this rather obscure Old Testament book and going to the second chapter of the book of Daniel? It's like, I want to tell you everything I know about the Bible. Open up to the middle and then go, like, what? Don't we start with Genesis 1? Or why don't we start with the Gospels? Daniel 2, because somebody already mentioned it. What does Daniel 2 give you? 
Right, it establishes confidence in the scripture because because the Bible says so is a great answer to almost every question, except for the question, why should I believe the Bible? You need something authenticating, you know, so you have that. But the other one that always comes with that is going to be the one we're covering today, signs of the second coming. When I present it, I like to title it, watch out! (laughs) signs of the second coming, signs of Jesus' return. Why would those two be tied together? Like, it seems like, all right, we're going to take two topics. Let's go to a statue dream in Daniel chapter 2, and then go to the closing page of the book of Revelation with, behold, I'm coming quickly. Why those two? It seems almost like, almost a little arbitrary, but what is it? Okay, so the, the credibility is established through Bible prophecy And you notice that Bible prophecy starts, like when you go to Daniel 2, in the time of Daniel, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But if you notice, you're walking always closer and closer to where you are now. And it automatically lends you to thinking, okay, Babylon's done, Medo-Persia's done, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, and then, and in the days of these kings, God will set up a kingdom. It brings it right to home, right? And then you say, did you know that that second coming that was depicted in the book of Daniel is prophesied in the New Testament as well? Jesus spoke about it. And you start talking about that a little bit. So it, there's, an, there's a logical reason why you go to Bible prophecy and specifically the second coming of Jesus, right? That makes sense. So I've listed a few reasons why. And if you want to take some notes, you can. Um, but... Let's think about this. Why is Jesus, this almost is so basic, it seems silly to have to spend time on it, but why is Jesus' second coming such a central pillar of our presentation of Bible truth? Because, I mean, we should just talk about the cross, but that happened 2,000 years ago. What's different about this event? So it's true, yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep getting some answers, but I'm going to synthesize here in a minute. For my notes, here's what I was thinking, and you might resonate with this. First of all, it's really, really important, right? I mean, the the thing we're describing is the return of Jesus Christ, which will come with it the end of the world as we know it. It's a big, big, big deal, (laughs) right? Jesus is coming. The world is ending. It is important, right? It is... Right, it's the culmination of everything, but more than just an aggregate of a bunch of truths, it's going to, the Bible describes what's going to happen as the world will burn and dissolve, right? People are going to raise up to heaven. I mean, it's a huge thing. It has massive significance and importance. It's important. Right, and we're going to get to that in the manner of Christ's coming, but just regardless of how it's happening, the fact that it is going to happen is a big deal, Okay. And you tie that bigness in with the nearness of it. Not only is this big thing, they're going to say, Jesus is coming in 1,500 years. You'd be like, well, that's a big, I mean, even now, even scientists, non-adventists will talk about, you know, someday the sun, if we go on, is going to explode. And it will destroy or burn out. It's either going to be a big boom or a big freeze, but it's going to end life here on this earth. Why don't, we, why don't even people who are godless infidels and believe that's the case, well, why aren't they just shaking their boots all the time out of fear? Because it's so far removed, even if it's true. 
I'm going to be dead by something else long before that, right? So it's just not... But when we talk about the second coming of Jesus, not only is it really, really big and really, really important, it's really, really soon. It's imminent. It's even at the doors, right? So it's important. It's relevant in the fact that it's the next thing in the prophetic chain, and it's imminent. It's coming soon. And, just like the Daniel chapter 2 thing, today when we look at the signs of Christ's coming, it's yet another way the Bible demonstrates its prophetic accuracy. When Jesus could be talking to people 2,000 years ago and describe the conditions of the world at the time of his coming, and then you look around at the condition of the world, you're like, whoa, that book said these things. Just like the Daniel 2, you get reaffirmed in your confidence in Scripture, right? So there's a reason we talk about the second coming so, so much. But I heard it in several of the comments here that a common critique of our Adventist evangelistic strategy is that we don't focus enough on the love of God or the Gospels or the cross or all of those love, beautiful, true themes. Why do we have to have scary beasts on the pictures? Why is it always got to be in the book of Revelation? <laughs> now, why is it always got to be Bible prophecy? Why can't it be gospel assurance? Why can't it be the story of redemption? And, and, and You know what I'm saying? I want to share a quote with you. It's a somewhat obscure reference, but it's there in the Ellen White app. You can find it at your leisure. But it's from Manuscript Release 19, page 41. She writes, The light that Christ revealed to his servant, the prophet, and she's speaking of the prophet John in the book of Revelation, right, when he was on the island of Patmos, the light that Christ revealed to his servant, the prophet, is for us. In his revelation are given the three angels' messages and a description of the angel that was to come from heaven with great power, lightening the earth with his glory. In it are warnings against the wickedness that would exist in the last days and against the mark of the beast. We are not only to read and understand this message, but to proclaim it with no uncertain sound to the world. By presenting these things revealed to John, speaking about the end-time events leading up to the second coming of Jesus, right? By presenting these things revealed to John, we shall be able to stir the people. Now, think about the practical perspective in which she's writing this council. She's saying, how, what does it mean to stir the people? To get, to what? To rouse their attention, to get their focus, right? To, to alarm, to kind of get them to look, right? Wake up. By presenting these things revealed to John, we should be able to stir the people. Now listen to this and tell me this is a powerful statement. The usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell will not move them. Think about that. Is there anything wrong with talking about what Jesus did in his life here on earth and, and parables and wonderful... Those are great things, and we should teach those. But when we go out to preach our distinctive message, everybody's got that too. Right? There's something special about present truth. 
The usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell will not move them. We must proclaim our God-given message to them. The world is to be warned by the proclamation of this message. If we blanket it, if we hide our light under a bushel, if we so circumscribe ourselves that we cannot reach the people, we are answerable to God for our failure to warn the world. That is 19MR41, Manuscript Release, Volume 19, page 40. By the way, I, I'm just going to step outside of our flow of thought for just a little promo, a little prom promotional item here. In, in the, obviously, we have the Emmanuel Institute training that we want to let people know about. We have our Talking Points Sabbath School resource we want to let people know about. BibleStudyOffer.com, hopefully you're familiar with, the Discipleship Handbook and Fundamentals of Faith. And now, as of today, I haven't been over to the ABC yet, but today, is it there? So all of these resources are out there, and, and we want to promote them and produce them. It's great. But I want to let you know about an even another one, okay? And it goes to the very thing we were just discuss discussing. There are so many questions and concerns and uh, uh critiques of our Seventh-day Adventist evangelism process that in conjunction with the General Conference and Pastor Jim Howard and Pastor Mark Howard and myself came up with a, a series of very brief what we call evangelism FAQ, frequently asked questions that address all, and listen to some of the topics. I just want to throw this out there, okay? Is baptism the ultimate goal of evangelism? Now, don't answer. This is just rhetorical, but you're already thinking. I've probably had this conversation before. How about, are lots of baptisms the best evidence of success? How do we get our churches to focus on retention instead of evangelism? Why don't we focus on our new, our, our nurturing our members instead of going out and winning new souls? Uh, what, what if I can't find anyone who's interested in Bible studies? What if I don't have time to devote to giving Bible studies? Isn't soul winning the pastor's job? Is true evangelism merely a Christian lifestyle? Aren't I doing evangelism while I smile at someone at the grocery store? That's my evangelism. How do you answer that? Anyway, it goes on and on and on. And like, um, how often should we do evangelism? Should we focus more on Jesus and less on prophecy? I hear that refrain oftentimes, you know. Anyway, I want to let you know about it. If you go to grow.adventist.org, that video series is currently being uploaded. It's not there yet, but it will be soon and very soon available at grow.adventist.org. The little five-minute or less video and accompanying study guides. And I think we got a total, I just read you a few of them. I think this had 28 different topics we cover. There's already, if you go to grow.adventist.org, there's already another little video training series called Evangelism 101, and it walks through like evangelism as a holistic process instead of as just a one-off event, right? And all of that is available at the camp. Now, the reason we have all these resources is because people ask these kind of questions all the time and can't find good answers to them a lot of times. And if you're in a local church and you want to get people encouraged to go out and give Bible studies and do public evangelism and get involved in soul-winning activity, you might need a resource to help them along. So you could play these in your church worship service for the personal ministries feature. You can hand them out. You can do them in Bible studies. You can do them in small groups. You can use them in your elders training, your church board, or 
whatever you want to do, but these are resources to put to use however you like, but it addresses the very things we're talking about right here in the Manual Institute. Why do we always start with Bible prophecy, Daniel chapter 2, and the second coming of Jesus, and all those beasts and stuff, when we could just talk about love? I think it's a, I think it's a lot like, why was, why was Noah always going on and on about the boat? Because, by the way, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been true that they needed good messages on, you know, family relationships and rest and tithes and offering? All that would have been true. That's right. What about the boat? That's the big thing, right? As Seventh Adventists, we understand there's truth, but there's also present truth. This is the thing for now. And the reason we start with that, because Jesus is coming soon. We want people to be ready for that. That's the big boat on the hill, if you will. Now, I've probably gone on too long, and we don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but I see one or two comments. So it was, it was very important, because you already had a love for the Lord, but man, I hadn't seen this before. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank you for that. Was there one other, or are we ready to go on? Oh, I'm sorry. Spread the Word. That's the newest book. You've seen the grow cycle. The picture with the preparing the soil and, you know, sowing the seed, cultivating through Bible studies, harvesting with public evangelism and then preserving the crop with discipleship. Each of those five phases, our goal is to have a resource book, companion book for each of those. Right now we have the discipleship handbook for the discipleship phase of the work. We have fundamentals of faith for baptismal clearing for public evangelism. And as of today, we now have spread the word at least when I say we have it, the Michigan Conference is first to have it. We have 224 copies over in the ABC right now. Uh, and it goes along with the sowing of the seed, which is the Word of God. How do we effectively share our faith through literature distribution, through media production in a local church? How do I get, you know, how do I start a Bible school in my local church? That kind of thing. How do I get the seed out there? That's the whole intent of that book. It's not comprehensive for everything. It's on that one phase. How do I spread the Word effectively? Thus is titled, Spread the word. So let's go back to this signs of Christ's return. Now, we have been handed out. Is that correct? Or are they ready to be handed out, Pastor? Ready to be handed out. All right, let me. Oh, we've got a helper. Look at the smile. He did it with a smile. Thank you so much. Well, I'll come over here and pick on another family member since you're front and center there. And we've got the helpers doing their thing right now. And this, of course, this is called what the Bible really says about. Okay. And what we're being handed out is the same type of, same format of the study guide that you were given yesterday, what the Bible says about the Sabbath. And of course, when you talk about the Sabbath, you have to talk about the law of God, because it is a law of God. And you talk about law and grace, you know, so there's a lot of things related to it. The same is true when you talk about the second coming of Jesus. For Seventh-day Adventists, we have a very clear, and I believe correct, picture of the second coming in our minds. But when you mention the second coming of Jesus, in a broader, say, evangelical context, or even in a non-religious context, man, the floodgates open up about what possible ideas might be out there, right? So how do you get to the, the correct biblical understanding of the coming of Jesus Christ? We're going to kind of walk through that today. Unbelievers, of course, <laughs> people who don't believe in the Bible think that everything related to the Bible is silly. For the most part, okay? Uh, miracles, walking on water, raising the dead, water to water. I mean, come, get real. And when you go around saying that Jesus is coming again, I mean, we take that just so almost blithely, tritely. Yeah, Jesus is going to come again. Yeah, see when the Lord's going. But what we're saying is that 
there is a being named Jesus Christ who is real, and in the flesh he was here 2,000 years ago, grew up, lived a perfect life, died a horrific death, was buried, miraculously raised to life, then ascended into heaven, where he currently lives right now, and then he's going to come change clothes and put on kingly garments, right? And coming with 10,000 times 10,000 angels will someday, from the eastern sky, break through the clouds. And at that time, the world will dissolve and melt away with the brightness of his coming, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I mean, think about all that's involved with that. That is a, if you didn't already believe in Jesus, that sounds crazy. Right? By the way, has anybody gotten caught up in the whole like UFO thing recently? Do you know what I'm talking about? That the U.S. government has declassified these things, videos, and people are like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say more people believe in the reality of UFOs and aliens visiting Earth than they believe Jesus is coming back. In this day and age, they'll be like, if you said, I believe in UFOs, they're like, that sounds pretty good. But if you say, I believe in Jesus, like, oh, you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> right? So for us, that seems like just, of course, it's Christianity 101. Jesus was here, and he said he's coming back, and I take him at his word. But for a lot of people, this is a, this is a bizarre concept that Jesus is coming again. Even in the Christian world, mind you. You don't hear much about the soon return of Jesus. There might be some tangential allusion to it here and there. And most of the Christian world, most of the you know, folks who own TV stations and radio stations, when they talk about the coming of Jesus, do it, and we'll get into this in the second part of our talk today, and a secret rapture, kind of like convoluted, multiple faceted secret. I'm like, what? So outside the Christian world, the whole thing seems crazy. And even inside the Christian world, most people are confused. So what we take is just like run-of-the-mill, yeah, Jesus literally, physically, audibly, <laughs> globally, he's going to return, every eye will see him, and will go to heaven. Most people in the world, that's a foreign concept, even in the Christian world. And I think about that statement, the usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly other denominations, every other denomination period, will not stir them, will not move them. But we start looking at the, what the Bible from Jesus himself, actually says about his own return, it's eye-opening even to other Christians. Right? Yes, ma'am. Now, the end of the world, coming of Jesus, we tie those two things together, right? But even if you took, let's say, non-believers all together, do they believe the world is in trouble? Economically, militarily, ecologically? Absolutely. Didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. <laughs> But you see what I'm saying? The idea that we're headed towards something big is probably on a lot of people's minds. Mm -hmm. Now, they may not consciously think about it. Like, how can this economy, how can the, and, and pestilence, by the way, you start looking at the things, they're worried about things happening like storms and diseases and wars. What are we going through? We're walking through the signs that Christ told us to watch for. I believe people are looking at the signs, they just don't know what they're looking at. It's fascinating.
And what a great time. I mean, you ever noticed that, uh, remember back in 2001, after the September 11 events, everybody went to church? Yeah. I didn't know how young you were. It's like, were you alive in 2001? Yeah. I, I'm getting to the age now. Like, remember yeah. to the 2000s? And they're like, yes, I was, I was in diapers. Like, oh, man. <laughs> I remember vividly 2001. Okay, very much. And so, but people didn't know exactly what was going on, but we knew something was going on. COVID, but let me tell you, I had the opportunity to go preach an evangelistic campaign in England just after Brexit. And we got to talk about how the divided nations of Europe would try to cleave together, but they wouldn't. People listened. Like, did you know the Bible talked about attempts to reunite Europe and it didn't work out? I was like, how about that? It's handy. Right now, it's not terrorism so much. And it's not necessarily economic disaster, though I can imagine with the, <laughs> who knows what's the next thing. But pestilences might be on people's minds. As these signs increase, people's interest in these things, whether they recognize it or not, is stirring up. Okay, so let's, let's talk about it a little bit. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's do that first. 2 Peter chapter 3, and I've been talking a lot, so I'd like to have a volunteer read verses uh, chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verses 3 and 4. Thank you. You have a nice loud voice, and I want I you to use it. Voice. Amen. Yeah, amen. <laughs> You're like, amen for my voice. Yeah, I amen love it. <laughs> All right, 2 Peter chapter 3, okay. verses 3 and 4. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right, so knowing this first, okay, so this is one of the first things that we need to realize, and he's writing to believers, that when you come down to the end days, what's going to be going on? And according to this passage, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Let's break this text down microscopically. It's going to help us. Scoffers. Somebody tell me what it means to scoff, to taunt, to tease, to make fun of, to, to poke fun at, right? Yes, that's what scoffing means. That's, there you go. Scoffing means to ridicule someone, to tease them and taunt them. And they're, they're not just like generically mean. They have a specific gripe. Right? What is the thing? Yes, they will come in the last days, and notice what else it tells us about them. Walking after their own lust. So are these converted, genuine Christian people? Who? No. Apparently they've got some issues in their life, sins or lusts or rebellion or transgression, whatever you want to call it, naughtiness. And from their perspective, by the way, if you know that you're living in sin is the idea of a soon coming savior good news hey soon your judge is going to be here face to face so it kind of infers the motive for their scoffing right because they've got unresolved issues in their life and they don't like this truth they're trying to push it away with ridicule they're scoffing and their their complaint is where is the promise of his coming like, it's, it's a promise, right? Where is it? If it's the next big thing. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Which also seems to imply that they have a very kind of naturalistic perspective on life. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. It's going to be the same yesterday, today. You know, the, the continual thing is nature itself, and, and the cycles will go on and on. We're going to live and die. But this, 
supernatural invasion into the otherwise natural order of things is laughable. So we shouldn't be surprised when people scoff at the idea of an actual second coming of Jesus. Especially, as we've been saying, it's coming, it's coming and coming, but it hadn't come yet. So the natural scoffer would say, where's the promise? You said it was coming. And, that, and that, that, to, to their credit, it is a logical question. If Jesus is coming, and as we've repeatedly heard asserted here today, it is the culmination of everything. When? Isn't that the logical next thing? When? And you know what's interesting? The Bible doesn't tell us when. Now, we, we're going to get into the signs, and there's a reason we're talking about the signs, but let's be clear. The Bible does not tell us when Jesus will come. Is that understood? Some sort of molestation abuse going on. I agree with that. I agree with that. But I'm trying to come at it from an apologetic thing just to meet the skeptical or the unbelieving or even the people who are unaware that this is a thing. And it would make sense if the whole Bible is pointing to this grand culminating event called the second coming and people are like, oh great, when? And the Bible says, oh, you don't know. And here we are. Another day has gone by. Just like yesterday went by. I mean, the weather changes and I get a little balder or older. That's about it. But he's not any more here than he was yesterday. And odds are he won't be here tomorrow or the next day. But you know, but I, and I, I'm with you, sister. I'm with you. But let, and I appreciate your zeal. Let me, let me walk through a little bit. Let me walk just slower. But imagine if you didn't have that love of Christ and everything and you heard people saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But every Tuesday turned into a Wednesday, followed by a Thursday, and then a Friday. You're going to get scoffers. And Peter's like, don't be surprised when people make fun of this idea, because he hasn't come yet. Okay? But let's talk about what the Bible does tell us, so we know what Scripture says. Right? Let's go, for instance, to Matthew chapter 24, perhaps the most famous and best place to go in Scripture, A, because it's comprehensive, it covers this topic very specifically, and why do you think Matthew chapter 24 is an, another good reason why we should go there to talk about the second coming of Jesus? It's almost so self-evidently clear, but it's Jesus himself who's doing the talking, right? So it's like saying, what did the author mean? Well, let's go at the author, right? When Jesus, this is not just Paul's take on it, which I would assume was inspired anyway, but this is Jesus himself talking about his own return. So it's got, you know, double credibility. It's not just in the Bible generally, but it's specifically from the mouth of Jesus, right? And Jesus speaks about this. Matthew chapter 24, and let's start, we've got a few verses inside of here that I want to look at real quick. Let's look at verse 36, for example. It says here, uh, who wants to read verse 36? Okay, now, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole either, but I do think it's interesting. It doesn't say there is no day or the hour. Is there a day or the hour when Jesus is going to come? Yeah. Yes. Is it going to happen? Yes. yes. Does God the Father know when it's going to happen? Yeah. Yes. Friends, there is a day and an hour, and God knows when it is. We just don't know when it is. Is it possible that God knows something that he chose not to tell us? Ah! Now you think of all the things God could tell us. <laughs> and the Bible, by the way, we could look at several texts, but repeatedly affirms that God knows stuff we don't, and he chooses to keep us that way. 
The things that are revealed are for us and his children, but the secret things are for God. The hidden things are for Do you think there's more Jesus could have taught his disciples than he did? Sure. But he was like, this is enough. Yeah. But for some reason, he says, this is the information you need. I like this particular passage because it says that there is a day and an hour. It's not like we'll never know because we just have to make it happen and it's going to be a random, arbitrary day. No, there is a day and an hour and God himself knows it. But he has clearly not revealed it to us. Now, let's use our minds for just a second. Why would God not tell us the timing of his second coming? If this is the great big thing to look forward to. I mean, okay, but think about this. As Seventh-day Adventists, we understand that the sanctuary, and we're going to talk about that later in the week, is an outline of the whole process of redemption, right? It's a chronology of Christ's ministry from being born as the lamb in the camp and growing up among sinners. And by, by the way, when the fullness of time had come, he was born on time. Was there Bible prophecy that told the timing of Jesus' first coming? What about the public ministry? Ever thought about that? When did Jesus understand his mission? Age 12. When did Jesus start his mission? At least his public mission. 30. What was he doing for 18 years? Couldn't he have healed people in his 20s? Couldn't the world have been blessed by a teenage Jesus? I'm sh- I, and, and I'm not saying it, he, he was doing nothing. But you understand what I'm saying, right? He didn't do any miracles that we have recorded. And the Desire of Ages seems to indicate he did not perform miracles before his public ministry. So he had a whole... 33 and a half year in existence and only the last three and a half years. Why did he wait? Come on, think it through, friends. Why did Jesus start his ministry at 30? Because my hour has not yet come. Christ did everything according to the script, right? Scripture. There was a time for him to be born. There was a time for his public ministry to begin. Why did John the Baptist preach when he did? Because it was the time, right? <laughs> the angel came down and was like, all right, time to go preach. Now to go do this thing. Is it? What about Jesus' death on the cross? Was that ever prophesied? The book of Daniel again. In the middle of that last week, he'll be cut off, but not for himself. Three and a half years. We have it down to the, like, essentially the day and the hour, you know? What about his resurrection? Yeah. Three days later, rise up. What about his ascension? Yes. What about the day of Pentecost? Fifty days later, he had to be in heaven to pour out the Holy Spirit. So he leaves at 40 days, and he says, in not many days, the Holy Spirit will be poured out. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all assembled in one place in the house where they were taken. What about uh, the transition from the holy place to the most holy place? Yeah. October 22, 1844. Every step of Christ's work has a specific time attached to it, except for the last one. And Jesus says there is a day and an hour, and God knows it. He's just chosen not to tell you. Why is it in our best interest not to know? Now, you alluded to it. Go ahead, say it again. So the, it kind of keeps you on your toes. You know, some people do not like that insecurity of not knowing things. Like, I love not knowing. So one reason is the procrastination thing. We might put it off, and that would be bad. Like, if you know you're coming next Tuesday... I'll get ready on Monday afternoon. And many people are like, Tuesday morning. <laughs> but then somebody else said that, what if you die before then? What if you get hit by a bus on Sunday? 
So the second coming happens for you. It's your little personal second coming. Because it's, yeah, okay. Here's, the, here's another problem with that. What happens if I know that he's coming on Tuesday and I schedule my repentance on Monday, but when I get to Monday, I don't want it anymore? Did you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, an urgency about repentance all through the Bible that has nothing to do with the second coming? Has nothing to do with the second coming. Like, why in the Old Testament was it choose this day? Why not choose later? Why not take the weekend? Give it a week. Okay, so there might be a whole, like, you're not going to do your duty because you're just, you know, thief on the cross thing. I'm aiming for the second cross instead of the middle one. You might not choose later. Okay, one more comment and we'll keep it going. It's a very looming thing that on this date it's going to come. Yeah, so there's some concerns about that, right? So let's keep going. That was just one verse, (laughs) verse 36. Now skip down to verse 42, and the plot thickens a bit. Sister, I think your hand was next. Verse 42 of Matthew 24. Now he repeats again, you don't know when he's coming. Isn't that repeated there? But what is the admonition then? What is the recommendation? What does he tell you to do because you don't know? Watch, what's the next logical question? Watch what? <laughs> if I knew the day and the hour, what would I be watching? This, no, I wouldn't be watching for signs. I'd be watching the clock. I'd be watching the calendar. That's what I'd be watching. But he said, you don't know that, so watch. Well, automatically I can deduce that I'm not looking at the calendar. I'm not trying to calculate the times. I'm not looking at the clock. I'm looking for something else. So the same Jesus says, you don't know when, then says, so watch. Yes, and in fact, Jesus was wise enough to invoke that very metaphor, (laughs) as we'll see in just a minute. But he gives us something to watch for. So in the same Jesus who tells us not to anticipate a specific time, does tell us to watch for signs. So the answer to the, when is he coming? I don't know, but... I do know this. So though I don't know the time, I can watch for signs. Let's look at one more of these. Uh, Verses, well, I'll just read here the context there. Verse 42 says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Repeatedly he comes back to, timing isn't a thing you know. But that doesn't mean live like there's no connection to it. He specifically says, because you don't know the time, we should be even more earnest in watching for the signs. Okay, That's the takeaway there. So we're watching for signs and not calculating times. Let's go to another passage about this. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. Let's just start with verse 1, and somebody's going to be our volunteer, verses 1 through 6. But notice, he's writing to the people here in the church, uh, the Thessalonian believers here, and he says, concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need that I should write to you. And he gives us why. I don't have to write to you about the times and seasons of the Lord's returning. For you yourselves know perfectly. You know, this is Christianity 101 in the early church. You know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes, how? As a thief in the night. So the early church understood that they didn't know the time. And they knew that because Jesus himself said so. The disciples repeated it. It was a clear 
uh, it was a clear thing, not knowing the times. But, continue on, verses 3 through 6. Okay, now the plot thickens. Now, we had the invoked metaphor with the labor pains. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But read verses 4 through 6. The same thing is repeated. It's like, we know it's coming as a thief in the sense that we don't know the hour. But, you don't have to be cut unaware, even though we don't know the time. But what we should do, therefore, is watch. This is the exact same thing Jesus had said already. It's just, you know, Paul's take on it, his repeating of it. So repeatedly the Bible tells us that we don't know the time, but it also repeatedly tells us to watch for signs. How about this? Before we transition to the signs, we have a good break here. Let's take a break. How long did he give you for each break? Ten minutes. Let's come back at 3.20 and we'll start looking at these very signs we're supposed to be watching for. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.